0: This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the are Art weak. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. When there's a problem, the sooner you know about it, the better. And this doesn't just relate to high-level problems. The quicker you can identify that something is an issue and rectify it, the quicker you can get to making a meaningful difference towards your end goal. This is the case for email marketing. If the subject line of your email is causing a trend toward lower than usual click rate, you've got to improve that in real time. To do this, Cynthia Price, the vice president of marketing for Litmus, focuses her attention on good content marketing. How she does this is by analyzing and reacting to data based on real-time campaign performance. The end result? A content marketing campaign that originates from high-performing blog posts. Over the course of the past three months, that campaign that started as a blog post and wasn't
1: really a campaign per se, it turned into a giant revolving door of really great content where we've now done two webinars that map up to it. We've got a big downloadable piece of content and sales is just consistently sending updates to prospects and that kind of thing. So I think when we can react to what's happening in the world around us and really, really provide some value that isn't at the end of the day, we certainly hope everybody who touches that content becomes a customer, but ultimately we see the value in sort of the bigger picture of just providing something to the industry that is hard to untangle and hard to figure out.
0: Untangling complex email campaigns and getting the most you can out of them is imperative in today's marketing world. In this episode of Marketing Trends, Cynthia explains to me why email continues to prove its value in the marketing mix and how marketers can really maximize its ROI. And you can turn those declining open rates into successes. I'm excited for you to learn more about how to really stay on the cutting edge of email. Let's get into it. Brightspot Content Management System enables marketers to launch in just a hundred days. It efficiently manages marketing campaigns on mobile apps or updates investors on your corporate site, handling it all seamlessly. With over a hundred plus different content types and templates, marketers can deliver a customized, relevant experience to your audience. Additionally, integrate your current marketing automations platform and SEO recommendations directly from your BrightSpot content management system, simplifying tool management. Discover more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends. Hey everybody, welcome to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Media Strategy at mission.org. And with me today, I'm super excited. We have the VP of Marketing at Litmus, Cynthia Price. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm super pumped to have you for a lot of reasons. You have a cool company you're working with. You're up to some cool things. And I'm a nerd when it comes to all things tech marketing anyway. So I feel like we're going to find some common ground here. Let's start with the beginning. I was to start with like the genesis of marketing for you. What was the first thing? Was it a brand or a campaign? Was it school Was it a combination of those things? What was it that really grabbed your attention in terms of like, okay, marketing is the world that I want to go into?
1: Yeah. Well, for me, I was in a role at a tech company called Emma that was based here in Nashville. I was in a sales role. So I had done marketing throughout my career, almost accidentally. It was like, I liked to talk. I liked to communicate. I was a decent writer when I first started coming up into my career, landed in roles that just made sense. More that I was working for companies I was aligned with and found roles at those companies that made sense for me. And then, you know, I noticed I was using Emma, which was a tool that was based here in Nashville. It was an ESP, still is. It's a great company. And I was using Emma at almost every company in Nashville that I worked for because everyone here was sort of locally aware of it. And It occurred to me that I knew Emma as well as likely the people who were selling Emma did. And so it made sense to me just culturally, it was a company I really wanted to be a part of. So I went into a sales role for Emma when we were still, you know, 50 people big and over the course of even my first year there started getting more and more involved in marketing projects i think you know i loved sales and i think it has made me a far better marketer than i ever would have been otherwise i think if you haven't cold called anybody you should to be a good marketer you know <laughs> and so our marketing team was very small at that point we had a coordinator who was running our google ads we had a writer and a designer And that was it. But we had a really, really strong brand, even with the small audience we were playing to. And so I just gravitated more and more towards those projects and ended up joining the marketing team and kind of over the course of the seven years I was there, ended up leading that team. And we ended up with, I think we had 18 in the marketing org by the time I left.
0: This is interesting because not every CMO and marketing leader that I've connected with comes from the sales world you know, sales and marketing teams, as you know, have this reputation for being out of sync with each other. These days, we're seeing this near complete shift to this digital interaction and organizations are going to have to continue to really improve sales marketing alignment going forward. We know that. Or they're going to lose ground to competitors with stronger performance. They have that tight alignment between sales and marketing. What's been your experience now in the marketing leader role, understand the sales world, knowing that world well, what's kind of been your experience with these teams throughout your career and how has that experience really shaped your approach for bringing these two things together as a VP of marketing?
1: It is obviously critical. And I've been really lucky, I think, that I've worked with some great sales leaders and still do today where, you know, that alignment was as important to them as it was to me where you know I think both sides have to come at that with a give and take of here's what we're trying to drive and here's what you're going to do and there has to be sort of an agreement on the front end of what that looks like and then it's just constant communication even in the digital age we have face to face zoom meetings every week that you know talks not just about what has marketing delivered to sales but what is our sort of central thing that we're all trying to do together which in our case is pipeline and you know where are we on those numbers Based on sort of our goal, are we tracking to goal? Are we not? And what's marketing doing on the front end of those numbers in terms of leads generated and MQLs and all that? And then you know what do conversions look like on the back end so that everybody sort of knows, I have a role to play in this master equation here, and it doesn't do me any good to send you a bunch of leads that aren't going to convert. and it doesn't do me any good to even help you build pipeline that isn't going to close. So we try to have those really frank conversations every week between marketing leaders and sales leaders to really sort of get on the same page as to what's going on.
0: Do you have any favorite campaigns, whether at your time at Emma or at Litmus, that kind of stick out to you?
1: A lot of our best campaigns come from our best content. I come from an inbound marketing world. And what we're always trying to do is deliver something that's incredibly valuable to the group that we're talking to. And so one of my favorite campaigns was almost accidental. And it happened this year. It was the fact that Apple released new terms of mail privacy protection, which have this potential and created a little bit of chaos in the email world. Of is this going to blow up our visibility into how our campaigns are performing? Oh my gosh, we're losing open rates. What is that going to mean? How are we going to talk about that? And so. We just really put our ears to the ground on the marketing side and started to crank out content and thought leadership on a regular basis of here's what we know, here's what it means. In concert, our product team is working on some updates to our product that are going to help. And meanwhile, we're just providing the sales team with, frankly, new opportunities to reach out, new things to talk about, new value points that weren't necessarily about what our product was going to do to solve this issue because it was bigger than that. It was something that every email marketer was going to have to figure out. So ultimately, over the course of the past three months, that campaign that started as a blog post and wasn't really a campaign per se, it turned into a giant revolving door of really great content where we've now done two webinars that map up to it. We've got a big downloadable piece of content and sales is just consistently Sending updates to prospects and that kind of thing. So I think at the end of the day, we certainly hope everybody who touches that content becomes a customer, but ultimately we see the value in sort of the bigger picture of just providing something to the industry that is hard to untangle and hard to figure out.
0: We're a media company. So when you say content and doubling down on content and thought leadership, I'm like, yes. Yeah. Which is great. You know, that's a big bet that I think a lot of brands, even some larger brands, and we've spoken to folks on the Fortune 10 and 500 and 100. It's interesting to see kind of what they double down on when sometimes it surprises me to hear that they don't really double down as much on content and thought leadership like they could, Well, they'll go to other channels, so they'll mix up things. So it's cool to see that you made that bet. Why did you make that bet? Why did you go that route? Because you could have gone a lot of ways. Why content and thought leadership?
1: One of the reasons I joined Litmus is that Litmus did a really good job over the many, many years before I was here of being a real leader in the space and being sort of a voice. Email marketing is such a complicated, weird world to live in because the people who are designing emails know this inside and out that design for email is different than design for the web. It's somewhat archaic. There are over a hundred email clients that they're trying to design for. There's just all this confusion And so Litmus had done a really, really good job over the years of finding a place for that community to gather together, both virtually and in live events, finding resources for them. There wasn't a definitive answer on a lot of these things out there. And Litmus sort of helped to uncloud some of the murkiness there. We have the benefit of being relatively agnostic when it comes to ESPs. So all ESPs are writing content that's based on how their ESP handles something. But Litmus had sort of a more broad approach that was more about, no matter what you're using, here are some best practices for email design, both from a strategic standpoint in terms of getting better results, and then also how to code this bit so that the animated GIF shows up right, that kind of stuff. But to answer your question, because those before us had done that hard work over time, it's a natural spot for us. We are lucky that I have a brand that I get to work for where people say they love Litmus a lot of folks don't have that kind of brand. So we have a natural audience, I guess, is the answer to the question that is already paying attention to what we'll say. And so doubling down there and growing that audience and finding more ways to help them seems like a no-brainer.
0: If you look across the C-suite, you know this better than a lot of marketing leaders. The CMO and the VP of marketing role is either like the quickest turnover, like you're either not there very long or you can be there for some time and you either get called in for a rebrand or reorg or you retire, you know, one of those things. And you've been there two years plus now, which tells me a lot about the results, the high performing team that you've built and been a part of. And so that's amazing in and of itself, because I know a lot of marketers, if they don't land in the right place and get the right things going, they're not going to be there very long. So that's awesome. I'm curious about the state of the marketing kind of team or the state of marketing at Litmus when you first started? What was the state of the marketing team if it existed? Did you build it? Was it already there? What was your first 90 days like in that role? What did you focus on doing?
1: I came in with a pretty clear directive from our CEO at the time. It was before Melissa, our CMO, came in. And Litmus had, over time, we had a self-serve product. So, you know, you could get online and get yourself a Litmus account with a credit card that wasn't too expensive. Most people had that purchasing power. And... Four or five years ago, we developed an enterprise version of the product, developed a sales team that went from like 20 people the first year. Now it's, I think, over 60. So they're hungry. They're hungry for leads. They're hungry for the kinds of leads that we were not generating through that self-serve product. They need the kinds that are from larger organizations. And they need the awareness from folks who are higher up in the marketing org. The line item for a product like Litmus' isn't necessarily already baked into the budget. People have a line item for an ESP, but they don't necessarily think about a line item for Litmus. So my directive out of the gates in that first year, and I feel like now we've kind of come back to center a little bit, was how do we, one, grow that same awareness with marketing leaders that we have with email marketing practitioners How do we create a sustainable and repeatable pipeline experience for our sales team? And, you know, those were sort of the two things we tried to do coming in. So when I came in, we had, like I said, a pretty phenomenal content team who was really, really good. We didn't necessarily have an elevated website that those guys could share with their boss and say, I need this tool. And in fact, I need budget for this tool next year because we're going to need the enterprise version of it, which is going to give us more stuff. What we did coming out of the gates, we had one person on demand gen when I joined the team who was reporting to me. And that person was very disconnected from what was happening on the content side of the organization. So... He wasn't able to create campaigns because content was just writing what content wanted to write, which made total sense, which made us really good at content. But they weren't connected to the campaigns that we wanted to build for the enterprise version of the product. So I think the past couple of years have really been an exercise in integrating all of those efforts together and making sure that while we're building these integrated campaigns, we have an integrated campaign planning process that happens every quarter. Everybody's aligned on what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and what we expect to get from it. We also gave the entire marketing org a number that for their MBOs or sort of our KPIs every year. Pipeline is one of our collective shared goals as a team. And that wasn't the case before. So now we sort of all know what our North Stars are. You know, some of those still live on the self-serve side of the business, but then a lot of them also live on the pipeline side of the business. So everyone is sort of measured to some degree. There's also individual goals as well, but the group goal is about sort of those larger things we're trying to drive. I don't think that helped.
0: There's definitely a B2B kind of enterprise play for the solution, but there's also kind of a B2C play where like you're just serving the practitioner or the one one one-off. How much of the mix for your customers is that?
1: It's hard to say because those practitioners are still our primary customer at the enterprise level as well, or they're our primary advocate. We need to win them over in most cases before we can get anyone else's attention at the org. Sending a cold email to go back to my old days of sales If I were to call a CMO cold and say you need litmus or try to talk to them about litmus, they're just going to send me back to the practitioner. You're right. We're we're constantly in this sort of in-between zone of marketing to practitioners in sort of a B2C type methodology and gaining awareness and just buy-in from that more senior set. When our enterprise sales team is talking to larger orgs, They've got eight people in the marketing org. Sometimes it's marketing operations. They've got DNA. They've got all sorts of different personas, to use our language, that they're trying to talk into or sort of help understand the benefits of a tool like Litmus and how it'll work with their other stuff. The practitioner is the one that we really, really need because they're the ones who are going to be in the tool all day. And if they're not into it, we're not going to win, in my opinion.
0: Many companies responded to what's happened the past couple of years by developing entirely new forms of customer service and experience. What did Litmus do to double down on customer experience in the past year or two?
1: We have always been a remote first company. We also saw that email marketing actually as the past couple of years happened, the volume in email went up pretty drastically because if you were a brick and mortar organization. You can't sell things out in stores anymore. I mean, there was an insane amount of increased mailbox activity. It did a couple of things, one of which it had to help us reconvince our customers at how important it is to be thoughtful and strategic and what you say in the inbox. And it also helped them understand how critical email is to their business. It became a thing where we actually saw a lot of increased usage over that time, which is probably not the same, or increased needs over time, which is probably not the same for a lot of organizations.
0: Yeah, of course. It's like a lot of industries contracted and did not expand. And then some folks like yourself had an opportunity and saw some increased usage in customers, which is awesome. How obsessed are you with experimentation? Very obsessed.
1: Our email team who you know sits in my little corner of the marketing world, they are insanely talented, very data-focused, and really, really obsessed with testing. What can we test in this email? What can we learn from this email? How can we make this experience? I mean, I think we're hyper-aware that what we send out has to be the best. If we're marketing to the email marketing community or just the marketing community at large, what we send, how we say it, what we think about in these campaigns has to be not only perfectly designed in all the right ways, it has to surprise and delight them. It has to have really compelling copy and messaging, and it has to deliver value. All of those things have to be true along the way. So we are consistently testing. Almost every campaign we send has some sort of test running in the background, whether that's about the color of a CTA or... A headline length, or what is it that this audience wants versus this audience? You know, we're doing a lot of hyper segmentation. You know, if we send out a piece of content, we might message it differently for our customers than we do for prospects. And we're going to want to understand how those two audiences interact. I think it's our mission to be as good at email as anybody can be. So, really be using all the bells and whistles that are available because we want to teach people how to also use them.
0: On the bells and whistles note, I'm curious about this one too, because there are so many bells and whistles. If you've got really smart marketers on your team in our company, you know, we have folks that are bringing really good ideas and, oh, how about this smart comp stack or this Martech stack? There's so many things that we could be looking at and evaluating. And if we don't implement it or we do, we can miss the boat and we want to be relevant, et cetera. How do you balance that? Because you want to be on the cutting edge versus the bleeding edge. And yet you could spend all of your time looking at what's the next thing to do and use.
1: It's funny, I'm taking a course right now on agile marketing, just to try to get a lot more clear on how marketers can really develop, not just the agile methodology, which I think we've all been in Kanban boards and had daily standups and done sort of this idea of an MVP, but that it's a mindset. So how can we test our way into making a case for some of those bells and whistles along the way? So before we develop an entirely huge new website, for instance. And we're not that good at this yet. One of my team members and I are taking this Agile course together to try and figure out how can we step our way closer into Agile in 2022 because we're trying to not do the, let's build this thing over here behind a curtain and then unleash it on the world. And it'll be this great thing that everybody will respond well to because we just don't know. So the more we can kind of test our way into those things, Whether it's a fancy design and a new email or it's a new website, we would look at a landing page first or it's any of those things. Our goal is to try to let the data tell the story for us in as big of a way as we can. This year, we launched ABM. So we have account-based marketing running for our enterprise version of our sales team And we had to really slow walk that. You know, we couldn't come out of the gates with like, we're going to have the best ABM program that ever lived and it's going to deliver these results. You've got to like give yourself time to build it slow, to find the right list, to slow walk your way into the different channels you're going to use it on and really let the data inform how it gets bigger so that you're not sort of putting yourself in this position of like, wow, we just overpurchased an ABM product that we're only using 10% of.
0: You said a lot of things. I'm like, oh, this is great. I want to go into ABM. I want to go into what channels you're using. We're bullish on ABM as well. And we've seen the power of really good ABM experience. And it's such an interesting topic. And that's one that still surprises me with some brands that we connect with that aren't really flexing the ABM as well as they could or have tried it and then aren't going there anymore. Tell me about your experience and kind of what you've been using and seeing and testing in, in the ABM stuff specifically. For me, what I've learned
1: about how to build a good ABM program is that an ABM program is only as good as the list. So we went our first round with ABM. And, you know, if our sales leader is listening to this, he's going to bark at me playfully, but we kind of let the sales team determine who should be on it and said, who do you want? Who should be on the list? You guys look at your territories and look at your, who you would really want to attract. And like it bombed. That list wasn't right. That wasn't the right list for what we know about who actually closes in business, what we know about who actually becomes pipeline, what we know about the personas that we actually do get traction with. So we kind of went back to the drawing board and, you know, let the data inform a lot more of who should be on that list? So, you know, you look at your close one report from the last year and we're only going after those industries. We're only going after those size companies. We're only going after whoever and start small, start really small, as small as ABM will allow you to go and then build from there.
0: It's a big space, the ABM space, and to see some of the things, the technologies and some of the strategies being used. I know for some of our large enterprise folks, they use this podcast for that specifically where they might not have a relationship necessarily, but they'll have a very strategic prospect or a partner. They want to tell a story and they'll come on the show and do that. And then they'll connect with them and do big deals and start the relationship together where they didn't have that connection too. So it's this interesting yes and of like, you really want to make sure you're targeting the right people and also leveraging cool content and cool stories and cool ways to invite the folks that maybe aren't on your list, but should be, you know? And so I love that. What does the kind of the marketing mix look like right now in terms of like, what channels are you using, testing? The bulk
1: of our resources, I would say, are in content. So we're trying to use inbound as much as we can. And then we've got a paid media specialist who is running both our search campaigns, which we run with an agency, our sort of paid digital, paid social, anything about sort of like Google Display Network and all of that kind of stuff. And then we've got email and we've got review sites. We've got lots of sort of co-marketing efforts that because we are sort of in the middle of a whole bunch of ESPs, we do a whole bunch of stuff with those ESPs to try and go at their customers and and our customers together with some shared insights about what it's like to work with both of us. I would say that's the bulk of it. We also do events when events are possible. (laughs) Yeah. What's that look like now? Yeah. Yeah. We had a big events plan for 2020, which got (laughs) shut down pretty quickly. And then we ended up doing just a whole boatload of webinars, which was really fascinating. We thought our audience would get tired of us. We thought they would get sick of our webinar strategy. And I think that's one of the areas that we continue to double down on, partially because we try and do them differently than everybody else. We try to really make them incredibly valuable. We try to bring experts in that you know they don't get access to very often and that kind of thing. So hopefully, I've got a big plan for 2022, and then we have our own hosted event. So we used to do three events a year in London and San Francisco and Boston. In 2020, we were already planning to consolidate that down to one big event in Boston. And we had to cancel that. This year, we came out of the gates swinging in the spring. We were like, we're coming back. Litmus Live is happening in September. Who's ready? We'll see you in Boston. And had to pivot in August and sort of take that live version down. But we're having the digital version next week. And we've been kind of fascinated. This is the first time we've charged money for an event that's only digital, just to cover our costs, because our intent is to make it more than just a Zoom meeting, you know, and it's got some high production value to it. And we have hit our goals and then some on ticket sales. It's been really, really interesting. We're in a unique spot where this audience is just really hungry for that community. They're hungry for the resources. They're hungry for the expertise, which we're happy to find all the ways we can to give them to them.
0: Where can folks find out about Litmus Live? Is that still up on the table for folks to purchase tickets and attend?
1: For sure. If you go to our website, limits.com, there are plenty of
0: paths you can take to get to the event website. Awesome. And then I also want to circle back to, you said the Agile Marketing course. Where are you learning and taking that course?
1: Yeah, Agile Sherpas. They're phenomenal. They're just really good at this framework that I think, you know, marketers, we've been borrowing from our friends on the tech side of different software companies for a long time in terms of how they think about sprints and using a Kanban board and thinking about project management in a different way and really sort of thinking about that, starting with the MVP and not sort of building over in a corner for months before you launch something. It's funny, we're releasing our state of email report next week. And that's one of the key themes is that marketers are trying to find ways to be more agile because as personalization becomes more critical, which is awesome, like consumers want it, we want to deliver it, technology is allowing us to create more personalized campaigns. But nobody's given us extra staff members to handle the many different versions of this thing that you have to put out in the world to talk to different audiences in different ways. And so agility becomes more and more critical. And I think we'll only become more critical as we're sort of continuing to go down this personalization path.
0: Talk about agency versus in-house. I know some marketing leaders, they always want to build internally or hire internally. And some love the agency side and they feel like they need that. And some just kind of fall somewhere in the middle. Where do you fall in terms of outsourcing something to an agency versus bringing that expertise in-house or growing it in-house or hiring it in-house?
1: I think in some areas, it's hard to find the expert who can come join your team without having a strategist and a doer. So if you have one headcount, and let's say I had a headcount that For instance, SEO, we just engaged an agency to help us with our SEO. We have really good SEO. We have really good natural SEO. Our writers are tuned into what's working from an organic standpoint, but we don't have someone in-house, nor do I have a headcount I can justify just to strategize about what our SEO should look like. And also write that content. Those are two different people. So I need someone who really thinks about SEO all day and thinks about SEO in the context of lots of other, ideally SaaS companies or B2B companies at a very minimum, who can think about, you know, here's what we're seeing works. Here's how I'd like to change this. Here's how you can actually inform your content team to be smarter about it. There are places where it takes a level of knowledge that you can't cover with the headcount you have available to you, or it's a very small sliver like that, like SEO, that, you know, you're much better off with a team over here on the agency side. It's nothing for them to sort of take a look at our Google analytics and tell us what needs to happen next. Whereas, you know, I just don't have room for that in my overall headcount. It's interesting too, in our report that we'll release next week, one of the trends we're seeing is people using fewer agencies, bringing more resources in-house. And I think that's is something I'm totally seeing across the board because I think authenticity has become a thing that absolutely has to happen. People want to know they're working with companies that they can believe in and your internal resources are just going to land that voice better. They're going to land that creative better. They're going to land that sort of overall experience in a better way than even sometimes the best agency can, depending on what it is you've asked them to do going back to sort of this whole idea of agile marketing. And we work with a number of agencies in a bunch of different areas. And if you find a good one who's willing to go at it with you in that sort of iterative way, That's critical to me because I feel like the sort of old school version of how an agency helps you is they go over here and build something and then they sort of Don Draper stand up in front of, even in today's world, stand up and show you their boards and they're like, isn't this going to be great? And you need a little bit more iterative back and forth. What can we put in front of the customer that will really test it? And then you guys can build from there.
0: What's been your favorite day in the past two years at litmus and then what's been your most challenging what's been your most favorite failure my
1: favorite day honestly was the day that we announced litmus live was coming back (laughs) 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 experience so you know we came out in march and we were like we're doing this we've got the weston signed in boston it's gonna be great here we go who's pumped and the audience just ate it up everybody was so excited like oh my gosh a live event i can't wait surely by fall I'll feel good about it. People were buying tickets left and right. Everybody was so pumped. And then obviously the fail on that was when we had to go back to them in August and be like, hey, actually, we are going to pull this down. It was a lot of disappointed people. But I mean, the audience reacted really well to it. And I think that was when the new variant had come out. And so everybody was like freaking out a little bit about what is this going to mean? But yeah, that was sort of the biggest downer. I wouldn't even call it a failure, though. It was a good pivot we're in really good shape for putting this event on in a digital way. I'm trying to think of a real fail. I've got one. We did an interactive quiz in August that we released to the audience. It was just this awesome new way to use bells and whistles, new way to like ask them about how their email marketing program works and whether or not. And then on the back end, we were grading that their answers and saying, it looks like, I mean, it's sort of an old school magazine quiz where you're like, looks like you're a master you're a whatever and then gave them real tips for what to do with it. I think we made the critical mistake there of one, doing a lot of building before we tested anything out, and two, we didn't put a solid marketing plan together for it, nor did we have a plan to iterate for it. So now we're going to relaunch it next year in Q1 and We wanted it to have a bigger impact on marketers than it did. And I think part of it was just that it was fun, it was quirky, but it probably wasn't providing enough value on the back end for them to share it with their friends and think about it more in a bigger way.
0: Putting all this energy and effort into building this thing. And then it's like, oh, wait, did we build and test? Did we actually let data tell us what was happening? And yeah, no, I get that. And what
1: was the strategy for it? I also think we didn't really have a plan B. We had all these sort of places we were going to put it. And, you know, it was a marketing plan for it that was based on every other marketing plan we do. So it was like, well, here's all the channels we've got. Let's put it here, here, and here. And let's think about it. And then lesson learned for me was like, oh, well, when something falls flat, we got to try the iterative approach next time.
0: What would you say is Cynthia Price's guiding marketing principle? What's kind of your golden rule in terms of like, this is how I approach marketing or the guiding marketing principle?
1: At a foundational level, it's just provide value. Nobody's going to care if we're not giving them something that's valuable. Now, like at the bottom of the funnel, that's about how valuable your product is. At the top of the funnel, that might be about how to design an animated GIF, but every single stage has to deliver something that they're going to get something out of it, or it's going to be a positive experience for them on some level. I think that's probably my inbound content marketing route speaking, but I think that that's served me well for sure. That even when you go sort of into bigger channels and more paid channels, I think that's still the absolute end goal of the day for anywhere you're marketing.
0: From a MarTech perspective, can you share any tools or products that you're currently using to aid your marketing efforts at Litmus?
1: One of the things that has really changed the game for us is we got serious about attribution about a year and a half ago and built a few different views of how our marketing channels were performing. We knew from a last touch perspective that obviously organic does us really well, obviously paid search does really well. I mean, there were sort of some headliners that are easy to reinvest in, but we didn't have a sense of a lot of other things and how well they were doing until we got visibility into full path or even first touch attribution, which has been a real game changer for us. You know, when you think about, Email marketing, for instance, our own email marketing, when you looked at how it was performing based on a last touch conversion rule, which is email's bread and butter, it's what it's famous for. Everybody loves email because it does convert so well. It was kind of, eh, it wasn't doing nearly as well as you would expect it to do in terms of people actually becoming pipeline or signing up for a trial account or those kinds of things. But when you looked at it from a full path or even a first touch experience, it showed us how much work email was doing from an awareness standpoint, from a sort of slowly moving them down funnel in the background standpoint. That sometimes, even though emails aren't converting, it doesn't mean that they're not doing their job and that email has a job to do on the awareness and trust building and sort of helping folks on the back end. They might not be taking that action immediately, but you've planted the seeds quite well.
0: Periodically, you'll hear this over time. People talking about, oh, the inbox is dead and there's other things that we can be doing and spending time on and why waste time in the inbox, right? They're getting bombarded. What would you say to that? It's
1: been proven wrong so many times that now it's just sort of a laughable concept. Email wins all of the awards when it comes to what's your most effective channel. Everyone always says email when it comes to what channel gets you the highest ROI. Email always wins that one. I mean, it's a little unfair because email is an own channel and you know there's lots of channels that aren't and you just have so much control over what happens in email. But I think that email is more critical now than it's ever been to businesses. I think that that will only grow as we venture our way into a cookie-less world. The first party data that you have access to with people having raised their hands and said, hey, you can market to me, that will become more and more and more important. And it will also become something that's hard harder and harder and harder to do because they've got to want to sign up. You got to provide something that makes that valuable to them. But I think that it will only continue to be everyone's best channel in that way. We just have to get a lot smarter about how we do it.
0: What are you seeing come down the road? Videos are being sent via email now. That's not super new, but you're seeing variations of that links to things, short copy, long form copy is lots of different tactics and strategies. Like what's it going to look like in your best guess in terms of Five years from now, what's email going to look like? What's email marketing going to look like?
1: I think it's going to be just a lot more personalized. I think that there certainly will be more bells and whistles. I mean, we're always looking at like plain text versus HTML which one converts better and which one, you know, this CTA versus that one and this video versus just a screenshot. Like there, there's so many different ways things you can do in an email. That while I will continue to obsess over and study what works on a conversion front, at the end of the day, what matters is who's sending it and whether they think your brand is actually valuable. So any one email, if it's sent from a brand that has a lot of trust built and an audience that loves them, that email is going to perform a heck of a lot better than just you using the absolute best design tactics to an audience that doesn't know you from Adam those are going to be the key thing. So I think building authentic trust with our audiences is going to be the name of the game. And then we figure out, okay, these are the audience that is allowing us to market to them. Let's treat that as the privilege that it is. Let's treat that with all the care and thought and energy that we put into lots of more expensive marketing campaigns and other aspects of the org. I think a lot of people take email for granted where it is such a conversion machine that people are just like, well, let's just send an email blast or can't we just send another email? That seems like that will get this result that we're trying to make happen. I think that the creativity and the thoughtfulness behind an email program will only become more and more important as inboxes get more and more crowded, consumers get more and more picky about who they let in there and you know what they're expecting to happen from it.
0: Did you see the success of your customers that are using Litmus? Because to me, you now have all this intelligence. You've got all these cool customers you're helping and you're seeing what's working and what's not working. So twofold question, do you help brands? Like I know you provide the tool for people to use, but do you also help brands use it successfully by using the data that you're seeing? Because like you probably could look at an industry that you're working with and say, all right, like we're seeing this open rate, we're seeing these conversions. Like, do you use that to help your future customers or existing customers at all? We do.
1: We do it primarily through our content. We just put out a state of email engagement report that looks on the back end of everything that went through our system last year and tells you, okay, it looks like open rates. We always say like, don't take this and everybody send an email at 8 a.m. in the U.S. But kind of interesting trends where like first thing in the morning is the best time in the U.S. for open rates, whereas 3 p.m. is the best time in the U.K. Like I don't know, there's something interesting about that. That's just behavioral information about people. And I think as we get further and further down this AI path, depending on what third-party data does or doesn't allow us to do, we're going to get a lot smarter about those kinds of things as well.
0: Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the show. Super grateful and honored that you would take time to drop the mic and really share some really compelling things. Your experience, your perspective is incredible. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Yeah
0: let's get into the lightning round. Uh, This lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com forward slash marketing. We have Cynthia Price, VP of marketing at Litmus. First lightning round question, who is one of your favorite mentors?
1: My earliest boss, Alice Randall, who also happens to be an award-winning country music writer and novel writer. She's just one of the most fascinating people on the planet. She hired me right out of college to be her personal assistant when I knew nothing about anything. And it was one of the most enriching and awesome experiences of my life.
0: Wow. If we were to do a round table with you and another marketing leader or two, who would you want next to you on that panel?
1: I am a huge fan of Drift these days. I love everything they're doing. I follow Mark Killens, who runs their content marketing program. He is just awesome and super helpful. You know, He was at HubSpot for a long time, so he has that inbound frame of mind. He put out a little mini-series on LinkedIn recently that was about how they structure their content marketing team that I just ate it up. I thought it was so interesting. There are a thousand ways to put together a marketing team, and they found an interesting one for sure.
0: Tell us about a time you made a powerful choice. I lived in Oregon for a little while after
1: college, and I made the powerful choice to come back to Nashville, which was unexpected to everyone involved, and I am eternally grateful that I did.
0: What's something that you keep learning again and again? That there is so much I don't know. What do you love and appreciate about yourself?
1: I think I'm kind of funny, (laughs) and I try to be as open-minded as I can be.
0: How do you feed your creativity?
1: I love to listen to music and I love to read. I've actually picked up fiction again recently by like forcing myself to remember that I love fiction and I love it. I just had accidentally put it down in in light of business books for a while. and, And it's been really fun.
0: What kind of music do you like?
1: I like all kinds of music. I live in Nashville, so I am surrounded by lots of different live music all the time. I would say I'm a big fan of like Jason Isbell. I don't know what you would even classify that as, but that kind of genre is my thing for
0: sure. Okay. What was your first live concert and what was your last live concert? This is
1: so Nashville, Tennessee, and this is going to also date me. My first live concert was Leonard Skinnerd.
0: <laughs> wow. That's legendary. <laughs>
1: dang okay okay it was when leonard skinnard went on a a bunch of different tours over many different summers calling it their last and final tour and i was you know very young and we were like well you have to go it's their last i mean i knew nothing about leonard skinnard or music at the time the last concert i went to it was at the ryman it was a jason isbell concert
0: wow cool okay if you weren't in marketing what would you be doing
1: I would probably be in the music industry in some level. I wouldn't be performing, but I would love to just be around it because I just love it.
0: Cool. We share that in common. I like that. One person living or dead that you'd like to have dinner with?
1: My grandfather, who I never really knew, who I was very young when he died.
0: What's one thing you like to do for fun outside of work? I like to go to the beach. We also share that in common. (laughs) Last question, What's your best advice for a first-time VP of marketing? Get your data and your tech
1: stack in order. Find a marketing ops person who is phenomenal and make them your best friend.
0: (laughs) Cool. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for being here. Loved having you again on the show. It's an honor and have an awesome rest of your day.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Appreciate it.